0: The title of today's presentation is Mental Health, A Little Knowledge Can Go a Long Way. For folks who are joining us from afar, Judy Langhans will be monitoring her email, and if you have any questions for our presenter, feel free to email her and she will share your question or comments with uh, Judge Broderick, and her email is judith.m, as in May, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S at Hitchcock.org. The learning outcome for today for all of you, at the conclusion of this learning activity, you should be able to discuss the five most common signs of mental illness and emotional suffering in our society. You must attend at least 80% of the program to receive credit and you will earn one contact hour at the conclusion of the program. Neither a speaker nor anyone on the planning committee has identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity uh, and no one refused to disclose. So we are really happy to have John Broderick with us here today. And I just want to tell you a little bit about his background and um, perhaps a little bit of how he came to to do this work. He is, for those of you who don't know, our Senior Director of Public Affairs here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And he, prior to this, uh, was a member of the New Hampshire Supreme Court from 1995 to 2010. Uh, During his last seven years there, he served as Chief Justice. And much of his focus as Chief Justice was on court reform in an effort to make the justice system in our state more accessible, affordable, and understandable for most of our citizens. He was the first Chief Justice in New Hampshire's history to appoint a Citizens Commission on the state courts so that citizens could examine how the courts function and how they could be improved to better serve the needs of all who needed them. He created the first ever business court and expanded family court, mental health court, and drug court dockets around the state. After stepping down as Chief Justice, he became dean of the law school at UNH, formerly known as Franklin Pierce. Before entering public service, Justice Broderick was a civil trial lawyer in private practice for over 20 years and formally served as president of both the New Hampshire Bar Association and the New Hampshire Trial Lawyers Association. And I think it goes without saying, I'm sure we can all figure out by now that he's received numerous professional awards and several honorary degrees throughout his career. And I know one award I think was just in the past couple weeks, I think I saw something in the paper. Um, But in 2016, John Broderick agreed to co-chair the first statewide launch in New Hampshire of a national mental health awareness campaign called Change Direction. For nearly two years, he has spoken countless times to various audiences in an effort to improve understanding and awareness of mental illness, to eliminate its mythology, encourage discussion and treatment, and begin to change the unfair and shameful culture That surrounds it. So we're honored to have him with us today. You'll find that a lot of what he will share with you, he's drawing from his own professional and personal uh, experience. And I'd like you to join me in welcoming John to the podium.
1: All of you are brighter than I am because you understood those steps. (laughs) I would have had to leave the room, so I'm pretty impressed. Uh, In any event, it's great to be here. Uh, Judy told me I had three hours, so maybe I misunderstood her. Uh, In any event, I appreciate the introduction. Proud to be part of Dartmouth Hitchcock. But everything you heard in the introduction about my former life, while it was important to me, it wasn't nearly as important as why I'm here today or what I'm doing now. In the last 48 hours, I've spoken seven times. Twice in Bravo, Vermont. Twice at West High School yesterday with our Attorney General. Twice yesterday afternoon and last evening in Meredith. And I'm here today. In 10 days, I'll be speaking in Nashville. Congresswoman Annie Custer is coming with me. And three days after that, I'll be speaking in Nashville, And Governor Sinunis will be coming with me. This is the most important work I have done in my entire life. If you had told me 10 years ago I'd be doing this, I would have run from the room probably. But not now. My my mother had a great expression when I was a kid. She said, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. So God's been laughing for the last two years because this was never my plan. And now it's the most important thing I do in my life. I'm on a mission, really, to change the culture around mental health and mental illness. But it doesn't really matter what I want to do or what I think. It matters a great deal what you want to do and what you think. So every time I speak, and it's true today, I'm really here to ask for your help. Because if I do all this, Talking and nothing changes. Well, it's been rewarding for me. It won't matter much. So I really need your help. When I was a kid, I grew up uh, north of Boston. I'm sorry about that, but I grew up in Massachusetts. And I grew up in a really middle-class town and a middle-class neighborhood. And my best friend, when I was ten, lived right across the street from me, and his father was a graduate of MIT. And in my childhood, in my neighborhood. MIT was Rothschild's dad. My best friend's uncle, his father's brother, was an inpatient at the Danvers Mental Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts. And every adult in my childhood and every kid like me referred to that place as the Nuthouse. That's what we called it, everyone called it the Nuthouse. And you would have thought people should have been embarrassed by that, but they weren't embarrassed at all. I wasn't embarrassed. Years later, I realized how cruel that was to the people who were confined or treated there, and to all the people that loved the people who were confined or treated there, but that's what we call it. And on Sundays in the summer, my friend's father would often pick his brother up at the nut house and bring him to their house. And I can remember like it was yesterday, standing in the safety of my front yard. That's how I viewed it, by the way. And I would see that man across the street. He never looked at me. He never spoke to me. never gestured towards me. But he was pretty spirit. He was, after all, in the night. And he would be looking at the flowers by the side of their garage, sometimes walking with his brother around the yard. I never crossed the street on those warm Sundays to play with my friend. I, I wouldn't have had the courage to do that. But when he left my neighborhood, at the end of the day, I was relieved. I was 10. I was relieved. And I knew that I would never see anyone or know anyone in my life who had a mental health problem, that that guy was a one-off somehow. And I felt pretty good that he was locked away so he couldn't harm us. In the town I grew up in, by the way, it was 22,000 people. Everyone in my town had perfect mental health. Isn't And every marriage in my town was happy. That wasn't true either, but that's the world that I grew up in. And I never thought I'd deal with mental illness again. That would be my only exposure to it. I was wrong about that, too. Some decades later, in a different state, namely this state, and in a different place, namely Manchester, and on a very different street, Mental illness crossed that road and took up residence in my own house. It was undetected, disguised, unseen, but it was there. I had two sons, 11 and 13, It took up residence and my 13-year-old son. He didn't know he had a mental health problem, that's very common. Why would he know that? Just how he was. He didn't know it was a health issue. His 11-year-old brother had never probably heard of mental illness. And my wife and I grew up in a world where nobody talked about it, so we knew nothing of it. And back then, if you would asked me if my son might have a mental health problem, I probably would have been offended that you asked. How foolish was that? But nobody asked, and I never thought about it. When my son graduated from the eighth grade in Manchester, he didn't want to go to his graduation. It was on a Saturday. My wife and I thought, that was pretty selfish. Why wouldn't you go to your graduation? We said, you have to go to your graduation, and so he went. He wasn't happy about it, but he went. My son was a really talented artist when he was young, and so he spent a lot of time in his bedroom at his desk with the door closed, drawing. Today, I would say he was withdrawn, but I didn't know much about it. He started smoking when he was in high school. I didn't realize that. And when he graduated from high school, if you looked at his yearbook at Trinity High School, you'd find his photograph where all the graduates were. But if you looked through the yearbook at the dances, the football games, the school plays, you won't find his photograph there, because he wasn't there. He was probably home, drawing or withdrawing. I didn't realize that then. He was pretty smart, my son, and so even though he didn't meet that potential in school, he did okay, but not great. But he was smart, and he tested well, and he got into a pretty good college in New York. And you may have heard this rumor. I don't know if it's true, but sometimes when kids go to college, they drink. Have you heard that? (laughs) I think it's true. But in my son's case, he was basically doing postgraduate work at drinking. And he came from a household where we didn't drink. Right? My wife and I just don't like to taste it, alcohol. So he didn't grow up around it, so it was shocking to us. And I could detect it on the phone some of those weekend nights when he call. He would deny that he had a drinking problem. And we'd go down to visit the campus from time to time for parents' weekend, one thing or another. He looked kind of disheveled to me, but college kids don't dress like me. But he did seem more disheveled than his classmates. And eventually, some of the classmates sought us out to say, We're well, worried, your son seems to be drinking a lot. So I talked to him about it. he said, Dad, I don't know why they're saying that. I don't drink more than anybody else. I couldn't prove it or disprove it. And he didn't live with us, so what do you do? He he got through college. Looking back, I don't know how he did that, but he got through college, and he did okay, not great. He tested well. He got into a good graduate school in Boston. He lived with us for some of that. He commuted on the three days he had classes. Then he moved north of Boston, so we saw him less. But when he came home from college and went to graduate school, he was drinking pretty much every day. And he couldn't hide it or disguise it anymore. Pretty obvious. But he kept saying, I don't have a drinking problem. It was obvious he had a drinking problem, but he said he didn't. And he got through graduate school. I'm not sure how he did that, to be honest. He got a job pretty quickly, but he only held it for four weeks. wasn't his fault he lost the job. Then he had to wait a little longer to get the second job, and... He held that for less time, but it wasn't his fault. He lost the job. And my wife and I finally reached out to the alcohol experts. Told them what was happening, what we knew. And they had no trouble diagnosing the problem. They said, your son's an alcoholic. So that's what's going on here. So you had two choices, really. You can put him out on the street, literally put him out. And maybe he'll hit bottom and come back. I'd heard that expression when I was a kid. Or you can leave him in the house living with you, and he's going to die drinking. Not tomorrow, next week, or next year. But if what you're telling me is true, you can't drink like he's drinking and live a long life. So those are really your options. And my wife and I didn't like those options. So we convinced my son, I realize how silly it is now, we convinced him to go to rehab, even though he said, Dad, I don't have a problem. He said, Dad, if I didn't have these feelings, I wouldn't be drinking. Went to the alcohol people, told him that, and they said, Judge, every alcoholic has a reason. He's an alcoholic. And so we sent him off to rehab. And then he majored in rehab. He went to New Hampshire. Connecticut, Cape Cod, and Florida. And when he came home from Florida, I met him at Logan Airport, and he had been drinking on the plane, so it hadn't exactly taken. But thank goodness, he said, I don't have an alcohol problem yet. Now, my my wife's not here today, so I'm not trying to curry favor with my wife. Not that I'm above doing that, by the way, but I'm not doing it now. My wife is one of the nicest people on the planet Earth. I mean that. She's the kindest, most sensitive person. She would give her her last $50 if she thought it would help you. I mean that. And I tell you that because she and I were the decision tree, and we loved our son. Our younger son, by the way, had gotten his Master's degree at Trinity College in Connecticut, was recently married, he was moving forward. His older brother was just going backwards. So, we finally did what no parent ever imagined doing, but we thought we were doing the right thing, the only thing. So, we made the tough love decision to put my son out, literally out. That's the worst decision I've ever made in my life. And if I could take it back, I would, but at the time, given the two options, put him out or die drinking in your house, Seemed the best choice. When we put my son out, his underlying mental illness, which he didn't understand and which I didn't recognize, I saw alcohol, just exploded when he was on the street. So he ate at the soup kitchen in Manchester, slept at the shelter, slept in his car some nights, continued to drink. And I was on the court at the time, and I would drive every day from Manchester to Concord. And at some point on the way up and back, I would think, I must be the worst father in this state. I've failed my son somehow. What's going on here? What's happening in our family? My old son was doing fine. And after three weeks of dreading that phone call that no parent wants, And in our case, also being worried that it might involve driving a car drunk and hitting another family, we brought him home. We brought him home, knowing what that likely meant. We've been told what it meant, but at least we said he'll be with us. And when we put him on the street, I, I don't have any doubt that his underlying mental illness just exploded. And when he came home, he was drinking more, if that's possible than he was when we put him out. And I believe that he was scared to death, since his behavior wasn't changing, that we'd put him out again. And so one night, he assaulted me. I went to the ICU at the Elliott Hospital. I don't remember that. My handsome, funny, talented, master's educated son was arraigned issued an orange jumpsuit, and sent to the Valley Street Jail in Manchester to await trial. I didn't know that. My wife did. I don't know how my wife survived that. I really don't. And because I was on the Supreme Court then, it was an interesting news story. it was all over the newspaper, it was on New Hampshire television, it was on Boston television. It was written about in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times. While I was in the ICU, my doctors went on the Today Show. I didn't know that. And People Magazine reached out to my wife. Can you imagine? She didn't return that call. And she told me later that she would visit my son in those very early days when I was in the ICU at the Valley Street Jail. And she said he was sitting on the other side of the plastic glass. they talk on the phone. That his arm jumps you down. And she said he was so upset. He said, Mom, I can't believe I did that to Dad. Is he going to be okay? I can never forgive myself, Mom. Is he all right? And she didn't know, really, then. He said, Mom, you know, I don't want to feel like my family's abandoned me. So, some days when you can't come they don't allow visitors, if you could go to the cemetery, I can see the cemetery from my window. And if you went there at a certain time, I could see you. It would make me feel better. And so she would do that. I didn't know that. So she'd drive to that street corner, late March, early April, and wait at the Valley Street Jail at the appointed hour. She didn't know what floor, what window, even if he was there. She said, I'd give him the thumbtuck sign. Now I get in the car and I drive home. We lived about two miles away. She had to cry all the way home. I don't know how she survived but She said some nights I come home and there'd be twenty or thirty messages on the answering machine. I just delete every one of them. What would I have said? After about six or eight days, they brought me up to a private room. It was the first time I realized I was in the hospital. And so I said to the fellow who was pushing me upstairs on the stretcher, "I said, what am I doing here?" He said, "I think you fell." I felt pretty sure for someone who had fallen, but I had no other history, so I accepted it. So I had a room. I couldn't get out of bed for about a week. I remember one day the nurse said, tomorrow we're going to get up and walk to the bathroom. It's probably eight feet away. It looked like a day's travel to me. I said, I don't think we'll be doing that. And then some people would come visit me. And just a so, just so thought, by the way, when you visit people in the hospital, Try not to tell them you like their room, okay? People told me, I hated my room. Coming to me one day, they walked through the window, it seemed like three miles away, and they said, I love the view from your window. Try not to do that. But anyway, after I was here for about two days, my wife and I were alone, and she told me what had happened as best she understood it, and we just both cried. I'd been a lawyer and a judge my entire professional life. And I knew what it meant for my son, for us, for his brother, for his life. And I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't get out of bed. Fortunately, I must not have been totally with the program because I didn't have any thought that maybe somebody else knew about this. I thought it was just us. I wasn't allowed to see my son for six months. They wouldn't let me visit him at Dallas Street, and he wasn't supposed to contact me. I would have visited him, but they wouldn't allow it. And I'd been out of the hospital a month or so, and Father's Day was approaching, and he had made up a Father's Day card, very talented artist, and he sent it to the mail. I don't know how he did that. And my wife handed it to me. I couldn't drive then, but I was in the pastor's seat, and I opened the car. It was from him, and he wrote a message to me inside the card. and it was hard to read it. That was the son I knew who wrote that message. After six months, he was sentenced in the superior court in Manchester to the state prison. And if you haven't had that day in your life, I hope you don't. And because I was on the Supreme Court, it was still newsworthy, apparently. So that day, there were some members of the press sitting with my wife and I, when my son came into the courtroom, dressed in his civilian clothing, which I had insisted on pressing the night before. And he came over to us, and I stood up with my wife, and he gave us a big hug, and he hugged me separately, and then held me by the shoulders, and pushed me back so he could look at me. He said, Daddy, you're going to be okay. I'm so sorry. I could never forgive myself. Are you okay? I said, Dad, I guess I'll be okay. I didn't understand it. I thought alcohol does bad things to people. So I said to him, look, we obviously get into this as a family. If you don't quit, I won't quit. Your mother won't quit. He said, I won't quit that." And then he was sentenced to seven and a half to 15 years to the state person. I was on the Supreme Court at the time. About 20% of my appeals came from the very people he'd soon be living among. I'll keep you up at night. They suspended four years of the seven and a half. You'd have to serve that on parole, if you got parole. he had served six months, so he was going to Concord for three years. And that day when my wife and I drove home, we lived just a few miles from the courthouse. It was the most hopeless feeling I had ever experienced. That I couldn't do anything. I didn't understand it. After 30 days, once you're an inmate, it's true for all inmates, you can't have any visitors for 30 days. They're trying to figure out who you are, where they should house you. So after 30 days, my son had said to the psychiatrist, "Yeah, why don't we all meet, have my parents come up. So we met in a conference room in the secure psychiatric unit at the state prison. And if you haven't been there, I wouldn't rush off to go kind of a sad place, an antiseptic, hopeless-feeling place. Anyway, we sat there. My son was there, a psychiatrist, two social workers, my wife and myself. And the psychiatrist started the meeting by saying, Judge, I really like your son. He's a great guy. He's smart. He's funny. He's got all the life skills you need to be successful. My wife and I said, we love our son, but we're in the state prison today. He said, so let me tell you what's going on, Judge, with your son. Your son, he said, is afflicted with very serious depression. Anxiety and panic attacks were almost off the charts. If you had his problem and I said, hey, why don't you have a six-pack every day, which would soon become seven beers, and after that it would become eight beers, you'd probably resist, but you'd eventually do it yourself, Judge. You was self medicated I didn't know that. My son kept saying, I'm not an alcoholic. But he said, oh, you're an alcoholic. He hasn't had a drink now in 10 years. He said, dad, I could stay overnight in a liquor store I wouldn't drink. He said, we're going to try to work with your son and see if we can help him, because he's got a lot of potential. So when we left that day, we walked out that long driveway behind the Sally Porter, the secure psychiatric unit. I remember we didn't say much. It, it seemed really bad now. It wasn't that he was an alcoholic, which was bad now. Now he had mental illness. I didn't know much about it. And I had all those flashbacks of that guy across the street from my childhood. After about 90 days, we would visit twice a week. My son came out one night and he looked great because he wasn't drinking. And he said to my wife and I, he said, I feel so different, Dad. I haven't felt like this since I was a child. I said, so what are they doing? He said, I don't know, Dad. I take three or four pills in the morning. And I take a couple at night. I haven't slept like this in years. I can focus. My mind's not racing. I'm teaching now, Dad. And when he told us that, I was happy for him and I realized how much we had failed him. I was, after all, a parent. I should have known something. I should have seen that at some level. I didn't see it. He was like that for the balance of his time there. I said to him one night, I was worried. I said, if you want me to resign my job, I'll resign it. I don't want my job to jeopardize your physical health and safety. Now, if my father had said that to me and I was in the state prison, I would say, Dad, why don't we announce it right now over the intercom here?" He never did that. He said, Dad, you worked too hard to get on a court. I'm not going to do that to you. Don't do that. If it gets really bad, Dad, I'll tell you, but don't do that. He never asked me to. My son was married at the state prison. Now, for those of you who are maybe going wedding planning, That would not be my first choice. The only advantage of a prison wedding is the receptions are really inexpensive. (laughs) Coca-Cola, ginger ale, potato chips. You get married in a conference room off the main visiting room during visiting hours. And I performed the wedding. And my son's wife has done her master's degree with him in Boston. She later won an Emmy in New England for her work on film and film editing. She was twice nominated. She won it once. I held the Emmy statue, by the way. It's a real deal. I would, have, I would keep it if I could. She's an amazing person. And they now have a nine-year-old daughter, my granddaughter. So, as a grandparent, we can agree I'm totally objective. But even if I weren't totally objective, she is like a child movie star, that's how beautiful she is. She really is. Stunning. Blonde hair, blue eyes. And every time I hug that little girl, I think, you're a miracle. You are an absolute miracle child. From where we were to where we are, didn't seem possible to me. My son was paroled. I didn't think they'd do that. I was chief justice then. I thought, well, that's going to look like the judge's son got special parole. But they did the right thing. And as a matter of fact, he was so good on parole. He was supposed to be parole for four years. The parole officer finally said, what are you on parole for? I look forward to meeting with you. Something wrong with that. He said, I'm going to ask that they eliminate the balance of your parole. I said to my son, you deserve that. They won't do it. I'm the Chief Justice. They did eliminate it. It was I need you meeting them. When he was to be freed, I, my wife and I were there. Channel 9 came up, it was still losing. I was Chief Justice. They put a microphone under my chin that day at the prison outside on the ground. They said, Do you have anything you want to say? And I said, Actually, I do. We're really happy my son's leaving and we will be joining his wife at Dartmouth. She was working up here at the college. And I said, I want to say something else. My son was not a bad person who's now a good person. He's always not a good person. He's not well. And those are very different things. I can't underscore that enough. That first Thanksgiving, we hadn't seen him in four years. We were getting something. He and I, he was in the passenger seat. We were driving to the grocery store. He was tapping his chest. And he said, Dad, have you always felt like this? I said, what do you mean like this? He said, good, I mean, that. like I feel and I said, I probably have. And so I knew that I had failed him. He wasn't a bad person. He had a bad problem. He also told me in that trip, he said, Dad, when I was in the prison, they gave me an IQ test. I knew the response, I was curious. I said, How'd you do? He said I was three points below genius that on the IQ test. So I was kidding him. I said, You couldn't be a genius? He said, Dad, my ankles were shackled. They were watching me through a two-way mirror. That's going to be worth three points. (laughs) I said, okay, he was genius. He may well be, by the way. He's smarter than his father. I know that. I went back to the court when my son was in prison. I told my colleagues on the court what I knew. I told no one else. I talked to no one else. I said nothing. That's the world I grew up in. I was kind of hoping nobody knew about it, maybe nobody read the paper, but they had. And so I'd go to grocery stores and gas stations and that. And for a year after that, people would come up to me, strangers to me, but they had read the story or knew my face. And they would say, Judge, how are you doing? You're looking good, Judge. I knew what they meant. And so thank you. I'm feeling better, too. And my son's doing much better now. Oh, I didn't want to ask. I said, that's okay. he had mental health problems. I saw alcohol, not mental illness, and I made mistakes, obviously. He did too, but we're better now. Every one of those strangers, every single one of them, told me a story about the mother, the father, the cousin, the brother, themselves. I heard about suicides, I heard about involuntary admissions. They would never have told me that, but they knew I wouldn't judge them. Who would I be to judge them? or the people they loved. I'd go home, and I'd say to my wife, you know, we've suffered publicly, but that's been a whole lot easier because people support us. These poor souls are like I would have been. I would have been telling no one. Because that's to world like a rock. One guy said to me one night, my mother's been depressed, judge, for years, and my father won't take any good treatment. I said, well, don't be too tough on the dad. He learned that you don't talk about it. A decade passes, I haven't done anything. And one day, a couple years ago, I got a call from Bill Gunn, who was then the Head of Behavioral Health at Concord Hospital, He's a great guy, I knew him just a little bit. So he said, John, I have a friend of mine, her name is Barbara Van Dalen, she's a psychologist, she lives in Maryland, practices in D.C. She has a National Mental Health Awareness Campaign she wants to inaugurate, she wants to she asked me to lead the first statewide effort, he said, in New Hampshire. And I told her I'd help, but I didn't know enough people. But I knew a guy who might have an interest, and he knows more people than I do. He said, that's why I'm calling him. He said, would you be interested in helping? I said, well, let me call him. Though. So I did what any good American would do. I Googled her. Oh, come on, you all do that. So that's what I did. And when I Googled her, I wish I hadn't, because I found out that in 2012 she was on Time Magazine's one hundred list. The hundred most influential people on the planet Earth. That's the kind of list the Pope is on. She's pretty intimidating. So I wish I hadn't known that. So anyway, I had to call her now. So I reached her and I figured, well, I'll leave with it. I and go down the way. I said, Barbara, you're on Time Magazine's one hundred list. She was almost embarrassed by it. She said, Well, no, I was. I said, hi, Barbara, you and I have so much in common. She said, what do you mean? I said, I'm 101, Barbara, on the 100 list. We've got expand the list, Barbara. i got to get on it. <laughs> in my dreams. And she laughed. I liked her. I said, Barbara, what are you trying to do? She said, John, here's the whole campaign. I want to make the five most common signs of mental illness slash emotional suffering as well known and as widely known as the signs of heart attack or stroke. She said, I bet you know most of those signs. I said, actually, Barbara, I think I do. Why is that? See, well, it usually happens to somebody we love. And we've all learned the signs because we don't want to lose them. And now we call 911. We're all smarter now. And thousands and thousands of lives are saved. I said, why don't I know the signs of mental illness? She said, John, it's mental illness. That's why you don't know it. Nobody talks about it. People are still frightened by it. Often people are hiding it, and if they found it, they think it's hopeless. So I said, what can I do, Barbara, to help? She said, see if you can form a steering committee in New Hampshire. You're gonna be the first state. No, well, I didn't know. So I reached out to people. I'd been here a long time, and I'd been in public position. So I, I wasn't then. And so I called the Commissioner of Health and Human Services, Dick Trumperts, who I knew. I called Joe Foster, who was then the Attorney General. I called John Bartham, it's a safety bill run corrections. I called lots of people. Every single person I asked said, sure, I'll do that. Every single person. And every single person I called had a mental health story, sometimes about their own family, sometimes about a co-worker, good friend. Everyone had a story, and they would share it with me because they knew I was safe. What was I going to do, judge somebody? I've been pretty ignorant about that (coughs) alone. And then, we formed the steering committee, they met, and I had to raise money. Don't worry. I'm not asking. (laughs) But I had to raise money. I had no idea how much money we had to raise. So I made up a number that seemed big enough to be important, but not impossible to achieve. That was my test. So I decided we need to raise $150,000. I told that to the steering committee, hoping they would say, what? And they said, that's exactly the right number, which gave me no confidence at all since I made it up. <laughs> but now I was stuck with it. So the first trip I made, by the way, I didn't work here then, but i respected this institution my whole professional life. It's a great place, Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I had met Dr. Weinstein twice, so I drove up here, met him, and asked him for money. It took about five minutes. Then, I went to Elliott Hospital and asked him for money. Then I called the Nehantra Hospital Association. I spoke to Steve Ahnen, who's the executive director. I'd never met him. And after a 10-minute phone call, he gave me $45,000. I raised $135,000 in no time. I didn't even feel like I was working for the money. And everyone who gave me money, by the way, had a mental health story. Everybody. And they would share it with me, because I was safe. I wouldn't tell you, but they would tell me. I got to within 15,000 of the gold in 30 days, and I called Governor Benson, who I didn't know well, but he made me Chief Justice. And I knew he was a wealthy man, and I knew he did stuff for kids below the radar. I still had his cell number, so I tried it, and he answered it. So I said, I want to come see you, Governor. I'm trying kind to of raise money for this campaign. He said, what's it about? And I told him. He said, how far short of your goal are you? I said, I need $15,000 more, but I'm getting on it. He said, John, I'll send you a check for $15,000. I wish I told him I needed $50,000, <laughs> but I wasn't expecting that response. But God loves Governor love invention, So we had made it. Since then we've raised another 185,000. thousand. Dr. hitchcock has been our biggest contributor before I arrived here. Because the they've got it. This place gets it. And then we were going to launch the campaign. We had no, I had no manual. So I said, "Why don't we launch it in the State House? I figure we'll do it in a or somewhere." They said, "Why don't you do it in the House Chamber? There are 400 seats in there." I said, "Is it a session day? That'll be great. We'll have a crowd." "No, no, it's not a session day." I said, "We're not going to get 400 people. Are you kidding me? On a Monday morning for nonpartisan, nonpolitical public information campaign on mental illness?" I said, "Well, you might be surprised. We'll publicize it as best we can." Anyway, I showed up that morning, not knowing what to expect. We had over 400 people. Monday morning, May 23rd, 2016. It was the single most impressive room I'd ever been in in four decades. The Catholic bishop, by the way, whom i had never met, he came. The Episcopal Church was there. The Jewish community. The Supreme Court. Law enforcement. The attorney general. Civically, this hospital CEO's. It was an astounding room. And I knew that morning that we had somehow hit a nerve somewhere. It wasn't just my family or the few people who told me about their stories. And Barbara Van Dalen, the genius behind this campaign, was there. And she got up in that room and asked this question. If there's anyone here this morning, she said, who's been untouched by mental health, yourself, your family, your friends, if you've been untouched, I want you to raise your hand. I didn't know what to expect. But I never expected that no hand would be raised, meaning everyone in that room had been touched. It was stunning to me. It's not now. I said to then Barbara, how is that possible? If that were a physical illness that response, there'd be a press release from the Center for Disease Control. How can that be true? She said, John, it's mental illness. People don't talk about it. They don't want to share it. Doesn't mean they're not suffering or have friends or family members who are suffering. They just don't talk about it. I said, how often does that happen? That kind of reaction. She said it happens virtually every time, John I asked the question. She shared these statistics, which are <clears throat> blessed on my brain. Half of all mental illness in America, half, arises by age 14. My son was 13. Two-thirds by age 23. Last year, she said, more people in America died by suicide than in every car accident across this country. Last year, by the way, we had 43,000 suicides, 38,000 deaths on America's highway. We don't talk much about that. She said, every 90 minutes, John, plus or minus, every day, every week, every month, every year. A veteran, he or she, takes their own life. Well, there's 20 veterans a day in America to suicide? I understand that They're tough, resilient. Mental health is perceived as a weakness, so they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to reach out for it. So after we had the launch, and we had every member of our congressional delegation came and spoke and shared mental health stories about their own families. It took a lot of courage to do that. Governor Hassan was there. She was under governor. And then we didn't know what to do. We were stunned by the crowd. And so we just waited to see if anyone would ask us to speak. Since so May 24th of last year, counting today. I've been asked to speak 175 times. And I've taken every invitation i received. I've driven thirty-two thousand miles around the state. It's bigger than you think, by the way. You do it the way I'm doing it. Uh, they tell me I've spoken to over twenty-five thousand people like this, and I have invited myself nowhere, which is not a tribute to me. It's a tribute to this. I've been to seventy high schools. I didn't know we had that many. We have many more than that, by the way. I almost can't keep up with the invitation. If you were with me on those days when I go to high school this day, you would be touched. In the old Apollo program, I think it was Apollo 13, that famous line, Houston, we have a problem. Houston, we have a problem. I go into these schools, and I think, initially I thought, what topic could someone my age 45, 46. I am in denial. My wife tells me that, too. I think it's true. But in any event, I said, what topic could I talk to young people about when they would listen to me? If you had said mental health awareness, I would have said, Are you already in mind? But that's true. They do. First time I spoke to a school, I went to Pembroke Academy. It was a warm day. They brought 840 kids, the principal told me, into the gym. A warm, cozy place. They had kids on both sides in bleachers. The basketball court was empty. I had to stand behind the podium with a juice microphone. The ceiling seemed 100 feet high to me. I wasn't sure they could even hear me, let alone be interested to hear me. But I spoke for 35 or 40 minutes, and I said, this would be really awkward. If they can't hear me and I stop speaking, they won't know that I've stopped speaking. What do you do then?" I was terrified by stopping, but I had to, so I finally stopped. The principal was standing here, and the second or two passed, it was like my worst nightmare like they'd ever heard what I said. And then 840 kids stood up and applauded for almost a minute. It was stunning to me. I said to the principal, They don't know me, they're never going to see me again. These kids, I said, want to talk about it. And we, the senior people in their lives, have taught them the lessons of our childhood, which don't talk about it. The principal was stunned by it. It happens in a lot of schools I go to. A lot of schools. And kids come up to me. I must look like their grandfather. They look eight years old to me, so it could be true. But they come up to me. It happens in every high school. And they have wet eyes and cracking voices, and they would say, thank you for coming to my school. Thank you for talking about this. One little girl came up to me the first day, and she said, can I give you a hug? Oh, I said, I love a hug. Now, kids ask me for a hug. I ask kids if I can give them a hug, kids with the wet eyes. I met with 300 teachers at Plymouth High School one day. I said, I know there's a no-hugging rule in high school. I violate it every time. And I'm going to keep violating it until they don't need a hug from a perfect stranger. Where they maybe don't need a hug at all. They need it now. A little girl came up to me at Bishop Gurdon High School. She was a junior. And I spoke and she came up with the wet eyes. She said, you said something today that meant so much to me. I said, what did I say? She said, you said it's not okay to have a mental health problem. Just like it's not okay to have heart disease. But then you said, but it's okay. It's okay. It's not your fault. Help is available. Don't be ashamed. She said, I never hear that. All I hear is that it's not okay. Early along, I used to say to kids, are your classmates supportive? Oh, I don't tell anybody. I don't even know. Yesterday, at West High School, a girl came up to me. She was a freshman. She said, What I? She said, I have some mental health problems, but I'm so ashamed of that. I said, what color eyes do I have? She said, you have brown eyes. I said, if they become a problem, I've got a problem. I didn't pick my eye color. You didn't pick your illness. Don't be ashamed. One little girl told me she was an eighth grader up in the Lake Region. She wanted to talk to me after I spoke. She said, I have serious depression and anxiety, and I'm seeing someone, but I don't think she's right for me. I said, well, then she's not right for you. We'll have to find somebody who is. I said, the first, you should speak to your parents. Have you done that? Yes, she said. I spoke to my dad, and he, he told me he didn't believe in mental health problems. I just got over it. I said, well, don't be too tough on your dad. He's learned those lessons. The important thing is you know that you need assistance. So I want you to go see a teacher here that you trust. Is there a teacher you trust? She said, yes. I, said, I want you to see her today. Maybe she can help. Maybe she can bring your folks in. She said, what would I say to the teacher? I said, this is what you're going to say. Some judge came into my school today. And he ordered me to come see you. I think you can do that. And she started laughing. She said, can I say that? I said, that's exactly what you're going to say. As I was driving south that day from the lake, I thought, could I stand in a more important place that day? I've had a more important conversation with anybody that day. No. We need to change the culture around mental illness. And by the way, I don't mean this to insult anyone here, but if you're over 40, you had your chance, and you blew it. I had my chance, I blew it too. The baby boomer generation did a lot of great things, but our mental health, our goal was to keep it hidden. Concealed and not distressed. We actually did a great job. But we hurt a lot of people. We tarnished a lot of people. One in five adults, one in five, will have a mental health issue at some point during their lifetime. Let's not talk about that. That's kind of awkward. Let's not deal with that. Let's not normalize it, demythologize it, talk about it. We need to. When I was a kid, you know, I feel like I'm 100 years old, maybe I am, but I feel that way some days. When I was a kid, I had a friend whose mother was sick, and I said to my mother, what's wrong with Jimmy's mother? And she looked at me said, that pain depression? We were alone in the kitchen. She whispered that Jimmy's mother had cancer. She whispered it. Some people in my childhood didn't even say the word cancer. They would say he or she has to see word the only adult in my childhood who ever said the word breast publicly was Hugh Hefner, Playboy magazine. Seriously. He was the only adult that ever said the word breast. People whispered the word cancer if they said it at all, and no one said the word breast. Can you imagine a breast cancer awareness campaign in my childhood? You wouldn't have known what they were campaigning for. Some decades later, some brave person or people said, that's ridiculous. Put breast cancer together, they got the color pink, they got a megaphone and said, Enough. My guess is most women in my childhood who had breast cancer died from it. Today the outcomes are dramatically different. Remember the AIDS epidemic? People were dying when we found out about it. Maybe they were bad people. Maybe that was what it was. If I touch them, could I get AIDS? If I breathe, if I was in the same room, we ostracized and quarantined them, we were scared to death. And then Magic Johnson said, I have HIV, October nineteen ninety one. And then it was okay to have HIV. Not only was it okay, we had to do something to treat it or cure it if we could. Magic's still very much alive. Mental illness has never had a Magic Johnson moment. It needs one. It needs one. Well, we're going to have another generation of kids in the back of these auditoriums with their wet eyes. It's just not morally right. That might medically sound. It's not morally right what we do. If I could change it and flip a switch, I would have done that. I can't do it. But I know we need to. Let me close with this. Changing the culture can be really hard. That's usually a cop-out, by the way. If you're not going to do it, by the way, who who do you think should do it? It's kind of our job, isn't it? Can't keep kicking the can down the road. When I was a kid, my father was a high school teacher. And every Thursday night, we'd go to the restaurant downtown in my father's blue Impala. He loved that car. My sister, myself, my mother. There were no seatbelts back then. They weren't important, apparently. So we'd go to the restaurant and every table in the restaurant had an ashtray. Some had two. At some point during the evening, every table was smoking. My parents worshipped my sister and myself as they lit up and blew smoke across the table. And then after two hours in that smoke chamber, size as a restaurant, we get back in the blue impala, and my folks would light up. Two miles is a long trip. And so they cracked the window, you know, they cracked the window, filled system. I think my mother thought it was working well, but in the back backseat, I didn't think that was true. And then we got home in my house. Every room in my house had an ashtray. The bathrooms had ashtrays. Have you seen an ashtray recently? Where are they? What happened to you? If you smoke outside on the Boston Commons, outside, it's a violation of the city ordinance. If you had said to me, one of those smoking nights when I was 12 years old, John, do you think that someday ashtrays will go away? I would have laughed. I would have said, Look around this place. I'll be smoking. Ashtrays aren't going anywhere. We had a black and white TV when I was a kid. I tell that the high school kids. I look at me like, How old is this guy?
0: <laughs> and then to get even
1: with them, I say, We have rabbit ears too. They have no idea. But we survived it somehow. Of- and on the bottom white TV, some nights in the nightly news, I'd see African Americans being attacked by fire hoses, or billy clubs, or police dogs. remember one night I said to my mother, where's that happening, is that in some faraway place? She wasn't proud of it, she said, no, that's happening in our own country. If you had asked me, as a 12-year-old, do you think, John, one day during your lifetime, We will actually elect an African-American as president of the United States twice. I would have said, are you kidding me? It's not going to happen. Watch the news. Thank you, Barack Obama. I didn't know the president. I was chief justice when he was elected. My mother had passed, but her voice remained. She said, you better be down there. This is really important. And so I bought an airline ticket. I flew to Washington. And I stood with 1.3 million of my closest friends on the mall. And I had a great location where I was standing. I was probably 200 yards away from President Obama. He was about two inches tall to me mm-hmm. up on that big platform. But on the Jumbotron where I watched it, he was 15 feet tall. And by then I knew his distinctive voice. I knew the country had gone for more than 200 years for this moment, and I wanted to be there live. I wanted to hear it live. I wanted to experience it. And so I heard him take the oath of office as president of this country. And I was thinking a lot about my mother that day, and that which was impossible in her lifetime and that I would have bet you would have been impossible on my own. I would have bet my ashtray that wasn't happening. Suddenly became part of the history and fabric of this country. You know who made that happen, by the way? Not my generation. Young people. Young people who didn't see color, who didn't care about color, they care about content. They can take responsibility for Barack Obama. (coughs) If we can eliminate asterisks in a culture where virtually everyone spoke, and we can elect an African American president from the racism I remember in my childhood, we can't do this. We can't learn the five signs of mental illness, talk about them, normalize it, assist kids are suffering. Take away the shame, the stigma, and the shadows. You don't have to go outside. You don't have to march. You don't have to buy an airline ticket. Just have to open your mind and open your heart and realize that it's way past time. Way past time. Dartmouth-Hitchcock has been very supportive. I'm out speaking on their dime at this point. On the back of this card, says REACT. That's the Dartmouth-Hitchcock creation with the uh, Commissioner of Education in our state. What do you do? What does a lay person do when you notice the signs? The Commissioner of Education put the Department of Education seal under the Dartmouth-Hitchcock logo. That doesn't happen very often anywhere. He knows this is important. He troubled me five or six times. On January 25th, north of here in a joint school district, Vermont, New Hampshire, the Commissioner of Education from our state and the Secretary of Education for Vermont are going to gather and announce that we're taking this campaign, dartmouth into Vermont, too. Uh, but I need your help. Obviously, the fact you're here, Many of you working here or learning here, they're pretty important people. This is a health fair institution, a great one at that. And we don't talk enough about mental health. We don't know enough. We need to. Because if we don't, somebody a generation from now, like me, will be going into another high school general auditorium talking to kids with what I You'll be the children of the kids I'm seeing now with the wet eyes. Isn't it about time? I know it's time. But no matter what I think, it matters what you think. So I need your help. I know they have these charts here. They have posters. Would I love to see these at various locations around this hospital? Yeah, I would. I would i like to see them on your the refrigerator, so don't worry, I won't come to your house. But I'd like to see them publicly displayed in town halls, in schools. Trinity High School has posters with these signs in every single classroom. That's how change happens. Anyway, thank you. I've gone on too long, but I appreciate your being here. Thank you. Questions are not required. Can you just
0: tell us where to
1: get the little brochure thing? The brochure, Did Karen got this you? Because Karen Borsham delivered these we we delivered l I didn't get them. It's not a problem. I thought Karen Borsham had delivered a hundred of these and posters. No? Maybe so it was did they email
0: you and then you yeah,
1: what I'll do, by the way, I'll, I'll leave a couple of cards up here. And if you say I'd like 10 of these or 20 of them or 40 of them or a poster, just tell me your snail mail address. Or if you're up here at DH, I'll bring them up. There's no charge for it. So I, my goal is to get these out. We've distributed, by the way, about 352,000 of these. I don't mean drop them from an airplane. I mean give them them out. So that's how change will happen. So if you want them, I'll leave my card, feel free. But I need a mail address on where you are here. I've got them here. You. You're going to be here for a few minutes, maybe? If you will have- sure.
0: Okay, so just be
1: here if you have
0: other questions? I have a question that I think is, is applicable across the board. Is there any support or any anything in the government around funding for people who do not have insurance but who need treatment, both <laughs> <laughs> for out all- substance abuse, and
1: mental health. So that's yeah. the biggest crack I oh. see. Let me, uh, the answer to that is it's grossly inadequate. Mm-hmm. The system's broken, frankly. But this campaign has stayed away from that, not because that's not a critical issue, but because the minute I start doing that, I'm not going to get invitations, and I'm going to be a politician, right? Uh, that, but, but your question is that on. Uh, in the late 80s, by the way, in this state, New Hampshire Community Mental Health was rated number one in the nation. Now we're like 42. We have the lowest Medicaid reimbursement rate of any state in the United States. And these 10 mental health centers survive on Medicaid reimbursement. I met, uh, thanks to Congresswoman Custer, I met a year ago with Congressman Joe Kennedy in Massachusetts. He's a very impressive guy. He's 37 or 38 years old. and. Uh, So he said to me, John, I'm really trying to get insurance parity. We don't have that. I don't care what people tell you. We don't have that. And so he's working hard on that. Uh, But this is my view. Correct or incorrect, I believe it. If this problem could have been solved in the current culture, it would have been solved. If the culture doesn't change, if public policy makers don't feel some pressure, why would they add more funding? They won't. If if we said in the United States tomorrow, guess what? There's going to be no more research on breast cancer in America. That's it. We're done. There'd be a march on Washington election, which you couldn't imagine. If we said tomorrow, we're done with this mental health stuff, we're not doing any more research. That's it. That would be a bad week. There'd be some demonstration. There'd be some bad press. Because a lot of families aren't going to go out in the sunlight and say, what are you doing? My sister, my cousin, myself, we need help. We need services. If we don't change the culture, we won't change the funding. I, I believe that. And look what happened to breast cancer. They wouldn't have thrown a dollar towards it in my childhood. They would, they would never walk away from that now, which is a good thing. But they can walk away from this until we tell them I can't do it anymore. So. Change the culture, change the result. But we don't have a system now. But we need to.
0: Anyway, thank